0: This is The Guardian. Today, the small group of journalists reporting on a forgotten war and what it takes to keep the story alive. In her apartment, somewhere in a busy city in Southeast Asia, journalist Emily Fishbein wakes to another day of work, her phone's filling with updates from her contacts and pictures, people with gunshot wounds, torture marks. But it isn't Ukraine. Emily is part of a small band of journalists trying to report on the Southeast Asian country of Myanmar. More than a year ago, the military took power there and imprisoned the country's leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, Emily, an American, was living in Myanmar, but the day of the coup, she was at home in the States, visiting her family, and afterwards, she couldn't go back. Instead, she went to a neighbouring country, one she'd prefer we not identify, and started getting the word out about what was happening in Myanmar. First, the peaceful protests against the coup, then the military's violent crackdown against those protests, and now something close to a civil war.
1: It's very hard to even take a moment's rest or to turn off. So I am constantly checking through the news, but also checking with dread because my newsfeed is full of graphic and horrifically tragic incidents. It's shocking every single time that I open my phone to see the images and the messages coming in.
0: Emily is part of a network of journalists that includes reporters inside Myanmar, people facing extraordinary dangers, who she sometimes loses contact with for days or weeks at a time without explanation, no idea if they're safe.
1: Sometimes I feel so dark and down, and it's hard to even keep going in the day. So one thing that I do to cope is whenever I feel so heavy and down, I go to a flower shop near my house and I buy a potted plant. So for example, when I lose contact with a friend and I don't know if they're safe or not, or if a friend of mine is arrested, I'll buy a potted plant and then every time I look at that plant, I can remember and think of them.
0: And how many plants do you have in your house at the moment?
1: too many my entire balcony is full of potted plants even today i went out to get one
0: (laughs) and why did you buy one today
1: someone that we know we've been unable to make contact now for several weeks and that's terrifying and so i'm just hoping that we can make contact soon and that they're in a safe place
0: Many of the reporters in Myanmar who Emily works with don't use their real names anymore. People like a journalist. We're going to call John. He was there when the Myanmar military first started shooting at protesters and going after those trying to tell the world about it.
2: I was at the scene. Um, I was taking live uh, footages of the, of the protest, and the protesters were sort of cornered both by the soldiers and the police and they they use excessive force.
0: A year ago, Myanmar became one of the most dangerous countries in the world to cover. The White House last week declared the country's military rulers had committed genocide against the Rohingya. This week, those same military rulers promised to annihilate any armed resistance against them.
3: Speaking to soldiers at the country's annual Armed Forces Day in Naypyataw, General Min Aung Klang says he will not negotiate with those he called terrorists.
0: With the war in Ukraine and other news, the global spotlight has shifted away from the 50 million people now living under brutal military rule. This is the story of those who are still trying to tell the world what's happening there and what it costs them to do it.
2: So the danger that we face has increased dramatically after two of us were arrested and released. You know, it's, it's just not the possibility. It has become a reality uh, of getting arrested and you know being tortured and things like that. And I don't regret um, taking the risk that I did. And I just hope that what we have sacrificed would be worth it in the future.
0: From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, The journalists risking it all to keep Myanmar in the spotlight. On the morning of February 1st last year, Myanmar was still, on paper at least, a country transitioning to democracy. Its military rulers were facing accusations of committing genocide against the country's Rohingya minority. But elsewhere in the country, over the past decade, Those soldiers had been relaxing their almost total control over politics and the economy. There were suddenly free elections and journalists trying to report freely on what was happening there. That morning though, February 1st, 2021, everything changed.
3: Without warning, in the middle of the night, Myanmar's military made its move. Pre-dawn raids, the first confirmation, it was seizing power.
0: Emily, you had been living in Myanmar for years as a journalist before February last year. What do you remember of the coup?
1: Before the military coup, I was stuck in the United States in my hometown due to COVID. All my friends were in Myanmar, all my belongings were in Myanmar. My life was in Myanmar and I was waiting to go back. I got contacted by an international media outlet within a few hours of the coup, asking me to write an article about what was happening and file it as soon as possible. But at that time, I was not really able to get in contact with anyone.
0: Nunu Lusan, you're one of Emily's colleagues and you also work on these stories. And you're from Myanmar, but you've been living in Southeast Asia for the past few years. How do you remember the day of the coup?
3: The first thing I remember is to call my mom. So I call my mom and I I cannot call. I was so shocked and I could not call anyone, my sister, my brother, no one, I, I cannot. My friends, I cannot contact anyone, any family member or friends back in Myanmar. Myanmar's military junta has cut off internet
0: access across the country amid growing protests against this week's coup. Pretty soon, people started gathering on the streets of cities and towns across Myanmar in opposition to the military takeover. For the first few days, soldiers and police just watched.
3: (laughs) Many people are participating, young, old, you know, everyone, like doctor, teacher, just a housewife, everyone, like young students are also there. Even my close friends are, you know, in in a protest daily and I talk to them and, you know, they told me about their experience. It, It was really inspiring.
0: There was this brief flicker of hope that people power could overcome the military power of the country's new leaders. It didn't last. Anarchy but demonstrators have turned out in greater numbers than before in protest against the military coup of three weeks ago. And they do so in defiance of a clear threat issued on the state-run TV channel, which
3: declared that protesters will suffer the loss of life if they continued in what an army statement called the path of confrontation. And later on, it's become very, very scary and very horrific in Myanmar when they're starting to shoot with the light bullet to the people, you know, people started to get killed, a lot of protesters get killed, and um, that really shocked me.
0: The United Nations says 38 people have been killed during protests in Myanmar, in the worst day of violence since the military coup last month. Security forces opened fire on large crowds in several cities across the country.
1: I remember one of the darkest moments for me early on was on March 8th. At that time, Nunu and I were working together to write a piece about International Women's Day and about women uh, who were protesting by hanging their sarongs on the street, and it was very um, positive and energetic. And, and at the same time, one of my friends back in the town where I used to live, Mitjina, the capital of Kachin State, he was messaging me that he was at a protest and things were not going well. Uh, he was in, it was at, near a Catholic church. In Mitjina. Armed police are in pursuit. And I remember, you know, hearing my phone vibrate and I opened it up and it was pictures that he had taken right in front of his eyes of protesters that were shot dead right in front of him. I just I didn't really know how to respond. It was just so shocking and and there were many images of that coming out, especially of a Catholic nun who had gone um, you know, on her knees and was begging police and soldiers not to shoot, not to crack down on the protesters. It was such a shocking moment, I think, for all of us.
3: An ordinary person doing the extraordinary against a terrifying military threat.
0: Emily, kind of put this in context for us. A lot of these people you were dealing with, these were not activists. These were not necessarily fighters. I mean, who, who were a lot of these people you were dealing with? And chart for me how you were watching them change, how you were watching them shift into the roles that they many of them now occupy.
1: Yeah, the shift was quite rapid and quite intense. Everyone got swept up in this. So, people who were apolitical before, my friends, you know, for me, I'm involved in a lot of arts. So, my friends who are musicians, artists, dancers, and they witnessed really horrific violence. They saw their friends being, you know, shot in front of them, arrested, disappeared. And people felt they had no other option. And so, a lot of them have gone into the jungles and they've taken up arms.
3: Learning the skill of stealth in the jungles of Myanmar aren't soldiers. Many of them are just students. Young men and women who have left their cities, left their colleges and jobs to train to fight. Ethnic armed groups are teaching them how to defend themselves against a brutal, merciless military.
1: That was something that never in a million years would I imagine. These are people who are very gentle, who are peace-loving people, who are taking up arms because they really feel that they have no other options. So that's been very heartbreaking to see.
0: Emily and Nunu couldn't go back to Myanmar, but they couldn't ignore what was happening there either. They were in touch with so many people who had become activists, resistance fighters, war correspondents. And they started working with people inside the country to get the story out.
1: I was in contact with a lot of the local journalists, and I got to know them quite well. And so when I left Myanmar, I maintained contact with them regularly, and we would always check in. And as the year went on, I could see progressively the situation getting worse and worse for them.
2: For the journalists still in Myanmar, they have a decision to make almost every day. Stay and continue
0: to report, or if they have the means, go into hiding or leave the country and continue to work in exile. One of their contacts was a journalist who we're going to call John. His media outlet, the 74 Media, used to investigate social problems and government programs. Within a few days... It was reporting on massacres.
2: Around seven thirty, one of my editors and camera operator came to my house and they said, Oh, they thought it's a coup and they they think I should be in my office right away.
0: John knew the morning of the coup, his old life was over. He had made his decision and he gathered his colleagues in the newsroom to offer them a choice.
2: I gather all my colleagues to my office and then I let them know that the coup has happened and So I I asked them whether they want to continue working as journalists or whether they want to quit, and then I share them the risk that they would have to take if they continue to work
0: as a journalist. And so, John, you were saying you gave the people in your office an option. You said you don't have to be a journalist anymore. What was their reaction? Luckily,
2: all of my team members said, if we did it, we did it together, and that's how we continue, you know, that, that day and... The internet was restored around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And as soon as the internet was restored, um, we made positions together to post the first pictures of, you know, situations around Michina after the coup. And that's how the day went that day.
0: John, do you remember when it first became violent
2: for you? The first gunshot sound um, in in Michina was on February 14th. I was at the scene. They use more manpower, they use guns, they use tanks to corner these protesters and they first make this gunshot. And then bang bang, two gunshot sounds went off and I was like, Oh, it's getting a lot serious. And that's that's the, the, the first, sort of like the first brutal crackdown on protesters by the regime. That's when I was arrested with four other
0: journalists. I mean, that must have been absolutely terrifying. I mean, were you afraid that you might be, be tortured or you might be sentenced to a long jail term? We didn't know what to expect because we were one of the first journalists
2: to get arrested by the junta. So we were put in the prison transport vehicle for the entire night and we didn't really know what would happen and i didn't sleep the entire night i was preparing mentally to face the torture in case they you know they torture me and how i would respond what kind of answers i would give that's what i was thinking that
0: night john thankfully you were released after word of your arrests became public but the danger you faced it must have only grown as the military grew more desperate to stay in power.
2: National news agencies, including Myanmar Now and Mizima's offices, were raided by the soldiers. And we knew that we would be next because we were very outspoken against the coup d'etat and we were very, very fast on our reporting. We were always the first to report major incidents in Michina. So we knew that we had become a target of the Hunters forces. And that's when we realized that because of the warrant that has been issued against us, the police could arrest anywhere they see us. So uh, we decided that it's best for us to uh, leave Nijina, where we were, so that we could continue our work elsewhere.
0: John, you would have been excused after that kind of experience if you had decided that journalism was simply too dangerous in those conditions, but instead you kept reporting, what did you do next? We
2: discuss again about uh, the danger of going into the field. You know, it's it's just not the possibility; it has become a reality uh, of getting arrested and you know being tortured and things like that. And then I told I, I gather my colleagues, and then I asked them again. You know, just you know, as you you can see this has become a reality and you, you know, have to decide what, what you want to continue. And I give them like two days to talk to their parents, talk to their partners, talk to their, you know, um, significant others, whether they would continue working with the 74 media. So two days later, we met again and everyone was like, let's do it together. Let's, the people need us and we would continue as a team. And that's how we decided for the second time.
0: And so what did that mean for you and your team?
2: On 7th of March, we collect all of our equipment and office materials and we relocate it to our safe house. We don't meet in person anymore. We change our SIM cards. Um, we don't sleep in our houses anymore. But we continue our uh, reporting on a regular basis, almost on a daily basis, despite of the dangers that
0: we face. And what can you tell us about where you are at the moment? What is it safe to say about where the team is and and how you're reporting from there? So
2: where we are at the moment, um, there's no danger of being arrested because ethnic armed organizations um, control the area. But um, it is an area affected by armed conflict for 11 years. And there were shellings by the junta's forces. And there's always a danger of, Helicopter attack or bombing from the fighter jets. It's still dangerous to uh, continue our work, but the dangers are just different sorts of dangers, you know?
0: I mean, one thing that strikes me talking to you, John, is that before the coup, you were a journalist. I mean, you were like anyone doing a journalism job where you're reporting on, on government, on corruption, on business... Over the past year, you and your team have had to become something very different. What kinds of journalists are you now?
2: We are still journalists, but it's difficult to stay neutral in this political situation. <laughs> so um, we are still journalists uh, working for the people, trying to inform the public what has been going on around them and so that they can make better decisions for their lives.
0: And John, obviously you're talking to us now. I mean, John isn't your real name. It seems to me you probably can't go back to your home city, right? I mean, you're stuck where you are now for as long as the junta is in power. That's correct.
2: That's correct. I couldn't go back to um, to my city for as long as this political situation continued. Because um, as soon as the authority knew that I am in, in Machina. Um, I would be arrested and possibly tortured and killed. So that's still a, a, a real a danger to me and my team.
0: Coming up, more than a year since the military coup. What Myanmar looks like now and how journalists are still overcoming dangers. report on it. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own U.S. politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts will be there every Friday. Emily, it's been over a year since the coup in Myanmar and the situation there has only gotten worse. What's happening? Bring us up to speed.
1: Protests are still going on now. They're mostly happening in the form of flash mob protests where people run out on the streets very quickly to avoid being run over by a military vehicle or shot dead. But most of the resistance now has moved to the countryside where people are taking up arms and they're fighting back through new armed revolutionary groups called People's Defense Forces, which are also joining up with existing armed groups called ethnic armed organizations, which were already fighting for self-determination. So many of these groups now are fighting back strongly against the military and the military has attacked very violently. With airstrikes, shelling, arson, indiscriminate attacks on civilians that have displaced hundreds of thousands.
2: It's not just Ukraine where possible war crimes have been committed, it's also Myanmar. The UN has now accused the military junta of human rights violations that amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity.
1: And those fights are still ongoing, and the military is using very horrific violence, including burning people alive, mass killings, burning villages cutting aid to civilian populations.
3: This is now a civil war. Claiming thousands of lives in the first year by some estimates. A conflict that's intensifying and is largely hidden from the outside world.
0: And Emily, you and Nunu have been working together on a project for The Guardian, working with journalists inside Myanmar to try to tell some of these stories. From everything you've told me, that must be really difficult work. How have you actually gone about it? Tell me about what it's like to work with some of these people whose stories you're helping to get out there.
1: We had reached out to a well-known poet and activist who joined the armed revolution to talk about his personal story. I don't know where he's based. I've never asked him, but I know that he is in a rural area and that he is leading an armed revolutionary group. And later on, he informed me that he was out on the front line as the conflict was going on. And at the same time, I was sending him messages, you know, can you double check on on the subhead, or can you check this word? You know, things like that. And he's responding to me on these editing matters. And at the same time, you know, fighting the revolution himself. So that was kind of a very a, a learning experience for me as well.
0: Yeah, that really puts journalism into perspective. What kinds of precautions are you taking when you're communicating with people as part of putting this project together?
1: So a lot of my teammates are living in hiding or on the move, and it's sometimes very difficult to get in touch with them, or I lose contact for days or even weeks, and that's terrifying. You know, we have all these kind of emergency plans in place, where uh, first of all, they're you know they're not using their real names on their bylines, um, their locations are not mentioned. I check in with them every day, and if I don't hear from them, then that means that something went wrong. So um, it's terrifying.
0: One thing I'm curious about is that both of you have given so much of your lives to covering this story, but there's a lot happening in the world. I mean, there's the war in Ukraine, other things, and inevitably the spotlight has shifted far away from Myanmar. What's that like for you guys, to see the horror happening there? And then in contrast, how little attention it seems to get in the world.
3: I myself is from Myanmar, Uh, so seeing that, you know, Myanmar is starting to disappear in a global tensions and it's really made me frustrated because inside people are suffering, like people are, are, you know, facing every day with their, their life in danger, you know. People who are taking refuge in a jungle, in a forest, you know, struggling to get a meal, Somehow I feel like our voice doesn't get out or, you know, it just kind of a disappearing. But the situation is getting worse and worse. But in an international level, is kind of disappearing. It make me very frustrated. And if sometimes, like, am I doing the right thing? And should I continue or should I stop? I decided myself that at least I can keep up just a little bit, you know, just uh, let the... People know what is happening in Myanmar.
1: It can be very disheartening and frustrating to see people in Myanmar again and again call for international action and just to see statements without real actions behind them. You know, even at the beginning when the coup happened, I was expecting everyone to be following and everyone to be interested. And I remember, you know, in my home, we had the, the newspaper delivered every day and every day I would check waiting for Myanmar to be on the cover and it wasn't. And a week went by, and I was still waiting. And I just remember one day I took the paper and I just tore it to shreds because I was so angry that Myanmar was not on the cover. And that was the first week, so you can imagine now. So as a journalist, all I can do is to keep getting the stories out, keep getting the voices out. Um, I save all my anger inside, and every evening I go to boxing class. Then I just box with everything that I have and just punch and kick as hard as I can just to get out some of that anger. And then I keep writing.
0: John, we're more than a year since the coup. Do you ever think back on what your life used to be before February 2021 and what it is now, it just seems there's just this gigantic difference. Of course, um, our life would be much different if there was no coup d'etat.
2: I was planning to get married um, earlier this year, but because of the coup, um, my girlfriend, my now ex-girlfriend, and I had to live separately. And we were planning to get married um in in, uh, in March uh this year, but uh the coup changed everything. And it's it's difficult for for my uh significant other uh to you know to continue the the relationship because she has to always be worried about me so we went our separate ways.
0: I'm sorry to hear that, that all of this didn't just come at the cost of your home and your safety, but also your relationship. Do you ever question, given what you've had to give up to keep living this life, do you ever question its value, whether it's worth it? I, I, I don't really question
2: whether it's worth it or not because um, I believe and I knew that um, what I'm doing is right and what I'm doing is for the people. And regardless of the sacrifices, regardless of the risks that I have to take, I would continue doing it. And I don't regret um taking the risks that I did. I don't regret doing what I did in the past in the past year. And I just hope that um what we have sacrificed uh would be worth it in the future.
0: The fact that you think these stories are still worth telling for future generations to me suggests a kind of optimism that you think in the near future, the situation could be different. There could be free people to read the work you're putting out.
2: Um, Yes, um, it seems like the the situations that we are currently in, it's the darkest time. But the darkest time always passed when the the dawn came. So um, we will reach a better time once we you know strive our best, and if you look at what the people uh, did on February first of twenty twenty two the silent strike was a success, and it shows the resilience of people, how resilient the people are, and um, I believe that we could reach to a better days ahead
0: and John, for the people who read your stories in the reporting Myanmar project and who now know where it's come from, the amount of sacrifice that it takes every day to keep putting out this kind of work, what do you hope they take away from this coverage? What's, what's the thing you want them to walk away knowing and thinking?
2: I just want the, the people who read the story to understand that um, truth is always important, and justice is always important. And <laughs> whoever reads the story, um, I just want them to know that in a very small corner of um, somewhere in the world that there are still people who uh, strive to achieve the truth and justice.
0: John, thanks so much for speaking to us. That was a journalist we're calling John, a reporter and editor living in Myanmar, thanks so much to him. And also to Emily Fishbein and Nunu Lusan. They all collaborated on an incredible project by The Guardian's Rights and Freedom section called Reporting Myanmar. You can find all the stories from that series at theguardian.com. And if you're interested in US politics or you're a fan of Politics Weekly and have enjoyed listening to The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland there, you'll want to subscribe to his new podcast. It's called Politics Weekly America. and You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So to get all the latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America, out every Friday. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mithali Rao. We're back Monday. This is The Guardian.